And uh, this, is, this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the words that we find in the scriptures that are always so challenging and so surprising to us. Our Lord, I pray that you would use uh, the words of, of this text and over the next few weeks that you would call us to be a church that is partnering with you, joining with you in your great mission that you have been doing uh, uh, for centuries, for millennia, and that we have a part in here in, in Bellingham and Whatcom County. And we pray that uh, your word would challenge us, um, but also encourage us. And uh, so I pray that you would now speak uh, to each of us, each of those lives, souls present here. And uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So over the last couple weeks, if you've uh, been with us, we've been looking through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, the last couple weeks have really been a lot about kind of the beginning of the Christian life. A couple weeks ago, we talked about when God calls a person to follow Jesus, when Jesus calls someone. And then last week we looked at the response. When, when, you, when Jesus is calling you to follow him, uh, we respond by, with faith. We believe in Jesus. And that's kind of the beginning of the Christian life. And actually, but, you know, God is constantly calling us. God is, and we're constantly relearning that we need to put our faith in Jesus. But one of the things that happens is when you put your faith in Christ and you have new life, spiritual life, one of the first things that happens, you begin to say, okay, now I'm alive. What, do, what am I going to do? What should I do now? And the thing that we begin to do is that uh, we join Jesus in his mission. You working on these uh, monitors here? The, oh, okay, sure. All right. Having a little buzzing thing going on. Thanks, Ted. Ted's our music guru. The, uh, so, uh, so one of the things that happens is when we... Uh, um, uh, put our faith in Christ, one of the first things that happens is he brings us to be a part of his mission. And I, when I was in a seminary, I went to seminary in St. Louis, and I took a, a week-long leadership class by a guy named Harry Reeder. He's a pastor of a large church down in Alabama. And uh, uh, Harry Reeder was talking about his relationship with his father. His father had a big impact on his life. And he uh, told a story about uh, when he was, he's probably in fifth grade, and uh, one day, this girl came into his classroom. She was kind of the you know, brown-noser, do-gooder girl that came in, and she said, Harry Reader, um, the principal is calling you into, into his office. And he said, oh, great. What, you know, what have I done this time? I'm constantly getting called to the principal's office. He goes down to the principal's office, and the principal uh, says to him, Harry, uh, your father is coming down to the school, and you're going to uh, be out of school for the next two weeks. And he said, oh no, you, 
you called my father, and my father is coming down to the school. And he said, you know, my daddy, he, he didn't believe in no timeouts. You know, and he was like, my daddy's going to come down here. He's going to have a bazooka. I'm being suspended for two weeks, and he, he's going to shoot me. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. There's no, and uh, so his father comes in. His dad sits him down, and it turns out his dad was a, uh, a baseball scout. Uh, for professional baseball. And he comes and he says, Harry, uh, um, I'm, I'm going on a business trip, we're gonna, and um, I'm bringing you with me for two weeks. And we're going to go around to all the, all the minor league teams and uh, colleges, and we're going to watch some football. We're going to do some recruiting together. You're going to meet Dale Strawberry and Pete Rose, and we're just going to spend time together. And he said, what? I'm going I'm gonna go on this scouting trip with you? And it was one of the, you know, the most memorable times of his whole childhood. And what he said was that, you know, it was really powerful when uh, his father came into his life. So, you know, his father would go play catch with him in the yard. You know, that meant a lot to him. But when his father brought him into his life, into his business, into his world, you know, he's scouting, the work that he did, when his father brought him into it, he said, that is when I learned about his love, uh, his father's love the most profoundly. One of the things that we've seen is that Jesus comes into people's lives, into, you know, where they are. You know, they're hurting and he ministers to them. What we're seeing is a transition in this passage where now he's bringing disciples. He says, you know, I'm not just here to help you, but I'm going to actually bring you into my business, into my work, into everything that I'm doing, and you're going to be a part of it. And it turns out that when we make that transition in our life, when being a Christian is not primarily about Jesus meeting my needs, but he's doing something more profound than that. He's actually bringing me into his business, into his world, into his work, and I'm becoming a co-partner with him. He's bringing me along. That is when we're going to actually learn about God's love more profoundly than anything else. And so, uh, this morning, uh, we are going to look at four things about Jesus' mission, about the mission that we're being brought into as Christians. And... um, and that it's primarily uh, Jesus' mission. And these are four things that I want to highlight as we just look at these uh, few words uh, uh, from, from Matthew and from our Lord. And uh, this is what I want to say. Four things about this mission that we're being brought into. First, that Jesus' mission is in both word and deed. Jesus' mission is always both a ministry of word, of teaching, and deeds, acts of love towards people. So Jesus' mission is always in word and deed. Second, Jesus' mission starts with his compassion. Jesus' compassion for people. Third, Jesus' mission is built on prayer. And fourth, Jesus' mission is always done by others. So it's in word and deed. It starts with his compassion. It's built on prayer. And lastly, it is always done by others, which is kind of a surprising thing that we see in this passage. So four things. So four things about Jesus' mission. The first is this. Jesus' mission is always in both word and deed both word and deed. And you see that there, verse 35. You look at verse 35 again. Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So, ministry of proclamation, teaching, word, and second, and healing every disease and every affliction. We see this powerful balance in Jesus' ministry of both instructing people and caring for their physical needs, loving, loving their physical needs. And actually, if, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn back a few pages to, to Matthew chapter 4. Um, and I'll read this to you. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, in verse 23, Matthew records a verse that's almost verbatim to this from Matthew chapter 9. It's almost the exact same words. This is what he says. 
He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So in the end of chapter 4 and in the end of chapter 9, Matthew records the exact same thing about what Jesus is doing. And if you look, those bookend, if you look at what happens between those two verses, chapters 5 through 7, which we looked at last year, is what? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, teaching. He teaches for three chapters. And then, so that's seven, uh, 5, 6, 7, he's teaching. 8 and 9, Jesus does 10 miracles where people come to him and he cares for them. And he's healing all kinds of people and he's welcoming uh, the outcasts and the marginalized. There are uh, these acts of love. It, it is both, um, Jesus is challenging people, but he's also serving and loving them. And um, these two things must always go together, word and deed. And uh, I'll tell you uh, one reason why that's particularly important for us. You know, the, uh, uh, the word for healing there that Jesus used, the word uh, ther- uh, therapuo, which is where the word we get therapeutic. And um, which means that one of the things that Christians, wherever they go, and, and this has been true about Christians throughout history, is that Christians bring, are, are called to bring comfort into places where people are feeling afflicted, where they're feeling sorrow, where they're feeling uh, oppressed, beat up. Christians are, are called uh, to bring comfort, and that's what Jesus does. And um, I'll tell you why that's especially true for us. As we think about being a part of Jesus' mission in Bellingham, um, we are uh, living in a, in a postmodern culture. And what that means for many postmodern people, if we tell people this is what the Bible teaches, what Jesus teaches, you should believe in him, most people in Bellingham actually, no matter, even if you can totally prove to someone that the Bible is true and that Jesus is who he said he was, they really actually don't care that much about what's true, what you can prove to them. Actually, if people think that they have the truth, people in Bellingham are probably more suspicious of you if you think that you know the truth. The thing that matters to a postmodern person is not so much what is true, but does it work? Not is it true, but does it work? What effect does it have on a person's life and on the world? And so uh, as, as uh, people think about who Christ is and what a church is, um, the thing that they're evaluating is not primarily, can you prove to me it's true, um, but does it affect your life? Does it love people? Does it transform the world? This deed aspect, so that these two things must go together of word and deed. Now, that's a little bit of an overstatement. I do think that a lot of people in Bellingham, you know, they want to understand, if I'm going to believe in the Bible, it's got to make sense to me. So there is an intellectual aspect to that. Um, but for the most part, it's a question of what do Christians do? What does Jesus do? Um, but the other side of that is um, that for many Christians, there's also a tendency to overemphasize the responsibility of the church to bring comfort to people's needs. We can have an overemphasis on that, that the church exists to meet people's needs, meet people's afflictions, just to simply comfort people. And that raises a question for us, that why does the church exist? Why do we as a community exist? Why did Jesus call us together? Is it simply to bring comfort into people's lives? Well, I think it's actually something more profound than that. There's, um, in, in 1 Peter 2, there's a verse that actually the mission statement for our church is built around. And this is what Peter says. He's describing the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
The reason we exist as a church is not simply to bring comfort in people's life, but we're here to announce the world this is who God is. We're supposed to show people there is a God who made this world, who made us, and our life only makes sense. We only have salvation if we know him. And so what that means is that these two aspects of word and deed, and when we're teaching and when we're caring for people, ministering to people, it's not just to provide for their needs, but to show them who God is. It turns out that the true God of the world is actually really caring and loving, and he cares for people, and he comforts them, and he um, mends their wounds. And so our purpose is not just to bring comfort. We cannot define our mission on comforting people's needs, but to show the world who God is, and when we do that, we're going to show the world uh, that he's caring and he's loving. And I think that the tendency is that churches tend to major on one or the other of these. Of a, They're either word kind of based, teaching based. You know, they, they have good theology. They teach the Bible and uh, everyone believes the right things. They understand things. But sometimes they can tend to be either cold or they don't out, reach out to others. And, you know, and it becomes a kind of closed community. The other tendency is other churches are very good at deeds of love. They're welcoming, they're opening, uh, you know, they give themselves away, they're very on mission and, and, and uh, sacrificial, but the truth that they teach is kind of watered down. It's, it's a little too accommodating to the culture, and we don't see either of those things with Jesus. What Jesus shows us is that when the Spirit of God is at work, both in Christ and in his people, it looks like this powerful combination of word and deed together. Okay? And so the first thing is that Jesus' mission is always both in word and deed. And uh, one of the questions that raises is, um, are these ministries at odds with each other? You know, can these go together? Can you be a strong, we believe the truth, we teach the Bible, and we're welcoming and loving and caring for people? Can you have those things go together? I think the answer is yes, and this is the second, and, but it's answered by this second point about Jesus' mission that we see. Not just that Jesus' mission is in, always in both in word and deed, but also Jesus' mission starts with Jesus' compassion, with his compassion, is the thing that motivates his mission. And you see that there, verse 36. Look at, it, look at what Matthew says. When he saw the crowds, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because uh, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So uh, Jesus looks at these crowds and, and he has compassion. On them. We're, you know, sorry, I'm going to use a few Greek words in this sermon. Uh, 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 what is it? Splognitimai uh, is the word for compassion um, that is really a word that literally means his insides were turning. You know, his guts, you know when you're, you, you feel that viscerally inside of you when you feel compassion and you just ache for someone? That's how Jesus felt when he saw all these crowds. Is his, he, he turned for them. And that's an important thing for us to see is that the way that Jesus sees our community, sees the world, sees people who are lost, is he doesn't despise them. He has compassion on them. He aches for them. God actually aches for people. And... Um, and what that means is that all the missions, everything that Christians have ever done, all the millions of people who have ever been served by you know, world, uh, uh, world vision or by uh, compassion or through, through churches that have been serving their, their communities, I mean, just millions of, pe- millions of people who have experienced the love of Christ, all of that has happened because Jesus looks at the world and he has compassion for the world. He has compassion. He loves people. And this is actually the thing that's driving us. It's not our love for Bellingham. It's actually his love for Bellingham and that he's loved us. And we've come into that love. It's his compassion. And what's interesting is that Matthew, you look at the people that Jesus has compassion for, and Matthew describes them in two ways. 
first of all, he says that they are harassed and helpless. Look at that. He, it says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And um, this is an image of you know sheep who've been wounded, who've been torn uh, torn up by uh, hostile animals. They've gotten caught in thorns and stuff like that. They're beat up. And the first thing, the reason why Jesus has compassion on people is because um, people have just been beat up. They've been beat up by the world. They've been beat up in relationships. They've been beat up maybe by employers or by their families or in relationships. They've been betrayed. They've been hurt. And it's really affected their life. And Jesus' heart aches for them when he sees that, that, that they've been harassed. And I'll tell you, one of the things that happens is whenever you decide the purpose of my life is to be a part of Jesus' mission, very quickly you are going to see that everyone has been beat up in their life. And you're going to be amazed. And you're going to say, this is a brutal world. This is a hard world. And, and it's gonna, you're going to ache for them, and you're going to share in this compassion that Jesus has when he looks on the crowd, whenever you join his mission. And, um, and I think for most of us, this is where we expect Jesus to be compassionate. I mean, many of the people that, ha- that, came, that we saw last week, you know, that came to Jesus, they had things with them that they couldn't help. You know, the guy's daughter died, and this woman, she had a 12-year hemorrhage, and these two blind men, and this man who's demon-possessed, and he's mute, and you know, these people that have just been uh, just hurt, and it's living in a brutal world, and so we expect Jesus to have uh, compassion on them. But Matthew doesn't just say that everyone is a victim, though. There is a nuanced vision that Jesus has for people is not just that they are harassed and helpless, that they've been beat up, but also it says, second, that he describes them as sheep, right? He says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep. And, uh, you know, in the, in the ancient Near East, sheep were uh, notoriously stupid animals. <laughs> uh, they did not, you know, if they had all kinds of safety. They had food. They had a shepherd to care for them if they would just stay with the flock, kind of go along. And they're just like, doon, 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 and they just kind of wander off. They would die. They'd get eaten by a wolf, and they're just like, what's in the trees? And they're just wandering around. And, uh, and so what, there's this interesting combination that Jesus looks at them. On the one hand, he sees, man, people have been beat up on the outside from others. The world is a brutal place. But also, um, he sees the world as people who are foolish. People make foolish decisions about their life, and that's why they're miserable. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't look at the foolish people who are making dis- keep making foolish decisions about their life, and they, you know, they don't trust God, and they're, they're not obeying God's word. He doesn't look at them and despise them. Jesus looks at, at also the foolish, and he has compassion on them. He has compassion on the foolish. And um, the, what the, all this says is that the Bible gives us a very nuanced and complex understanding of the human person and the human condition and much of the misery that we experience in this world. Um, It's a combination. Um, You know, we ask the question, why do people, why do we go back to destructive lifestyles, destructive addictions, over and over again? The Bible says, well, on the one hand, it's because we've been beat up and we're harassed and, and uh, we've been mistreated and, 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 and that's affected our life. And on the other hand, it says that we're foolish. We have foolishness bound up in our hearts and we don't know how to live because we've rebelled against God. It is this combination. Now, this complex compassion that Jesus has, both for people who have been hurt and for people that are f- foolish and who are a combination of those things, is an important um, 
challenge to our polarized uh, culture because Jesus' compassion is both a challenge uh, to liberal type people and to conservative type people. Because to the, to the liberal type people, he says, li- Jesus has compassion on all kinds of people, but he says, listen, people need to be taught. They need a word of God. They, they, they need to submit to God's word. They need to repent. They have sin in their lives. And it's, um, it's not only that people have hurt them, but that they make foolish decisions and they need to turn to God and that's what's wrong with their life. And so in some ways you might think, wow, Jesus is, uh, seems like a very conservative type person. He, you know, you read the Sermon on the Mount and uh, he has this rigorous moral code for, uh, that, that's not just your external behavior but goes all the way down to your heart and he has these, um, these principles about marriage and family. You say, wow, Jesus is very conservative. But then you look at his deed life and he's, he, the marginalized just flock to him. And they just come to him because he gives more freely to the marginalized than the most bleeding heart liberal. And he just openly gives to them. And he doesn't say to them, you know, well, if you'd made better decisions, uh, you wouldn't have got yourself in this situation. He doesn't say a word of that. He just openly gives to people who have nothing to offer him and and, and whose lives are, uh, you know, Matthew the tax collector has made foolish decisions. Jesus says, follow me. And he comes. And so um, Jesus is, uh, this doesn't fall into either of our categories, is because his compassion is far more profound than any of ours. And um, what that means is that the mission of Jesus will never align with any of the ideologies that exist in our culture. It will never align with them. And we have to be careful to make, that, that we don't think that it aligns, you know, that... that being a Christian aligns with being a, a Republican or a Democrat. He will never fall in any of those categories. And one of the big reasons is because um, both of the major ideologies in our culture believe that if they can get in a position of power, then they can change the world. If we can just get into the position of power where we are the culture definers, then we can make this culture to be what our, what we want it to. And that you will never see that in the kingdom of God by assuming a, a position of power that we can change the world. We see something radically different. And this is the third thing that we see about Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is in both word and deed. It's built, it starts with his compassion, his compassion both to the, to the harassed and to the foolish sheep. But third, Jesus' mission is built on prayer. Prayer. And, you know, prayer is the opposite of power. <laughs> you know, you're talking to God in a closet or something. You know, <laughs> it's the opposite of power. And, well, yeah, and, and that's how he imagines the world being changed. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus, at the beginning, he's about to give this long sermon on mission, and the way he begins the mission is he says, pray, pray. And um, I'll tell you, one of the the great things about um, ministry, or or just if you're involved in in the mission of Christ, which can look like all different kinds of things. It can look like serving in the church like this in various ways. It can look like reaching out to your neighbors and showing hospitality to them or to your coworkers, building relationships with them, seeking opportunities to share the gospel or just physically care for their needs. All kinds of ways that we can engage in the mission of Jesus. But one of the things that happens is whenever you start to um, focus your life on Christ's mission, you will find yourself being forced to pray. 
because you're going to be in all kinds of situations. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to handle it. You don't know what to say. You don't know what, how the person's going to react to you. You have things that you need provided for. You know, if you're going to be a missionary, you need money provided for. You need to, God to lead you with his spirit. There's a million reasons why you're going to need to pray. And, um, and I'll just tell you, um, you know, in the, of the course of starting this church, that was certainly one of the great things that God has, has taught me and taught us as, as we've learned, you know, one of the uh, scriptures that, uh, that I, I kept going back to comes from uh, uh, Luke chapter 12, um, where Jesus says that it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The way that Christ's kingdom is going to grow, that his mission goes forth, is he wants us to simply ask him to do things. And then he does them. And we say, wow, God is really good. It, it wasn't this laboring and working and, 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 and hard work primarily. It was simply children asking their father. He says, I want to give you the kingdom. And when we do that, um, we learn about God's love for us. And that's one of the reasons why I say when we're engaged in mission, you're, if, you, if some of you say, you know, I wish I, I knew that God loved me more. It just doesn't connect with me. I, I don't see God at work in my life. Um, uh, it's hard for me to... Uh, you know, it seems so real to other people, and it doesn't seem real to me. But if you look at Jesus' teachings on prayer, again and again, he says to his disciples, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. Anything. And some of us hear that, and we say, I mean, how's that true? Is that actually true for anyone? I'll tell you, the people who say that, that promise is dead on are the people that are most engaged in Jesus' mission. And they say, wow, Jesus is open-handed. And when we're, because he's talking to his disciples, he says, if there are obstacles, if there's a mountain in your way, and you have faith like a mustard seed, the mountain can be, that obstacle can be thrown out of the way, and you can just walk right through like it was a level path. That's what he says. And it's when we're engaged in that mission that we have to depend on God, and then we really experience his love for us. Now, this is the moment where Jesus is actually launching this mission, which this is a mission that's, been going on for 2,000 years in every nation of the world. And um, that whole enterprise, Jesus' whole enterprise to transform the world, which he has done more than anyone in the history of the world, was launched, that enterprise was launched with prayer, and specifically, though, a prayer for workers. Right? You see that, how um, Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And actually, that word is just to drive out, throw them out, cast them out into there. And, you know, for any of us who've served God in various ways, many people have said, you know, there's no way I would ever do that. But you know what? God just forced me into it. He just, uh, I didn't have a choice. And, he, and here I am. Now I'm serving him. And I never thought I'd be doing something like this. But he just threw me into it because God knows that we, uh, we won't go of our own will. We're, we're timid. We're frightened. And yet he just sends us, uh, he send, takes people and he throws them out. And, and so what Jesus says is pray that God would take people and throw them into his mission. Throw them into this act of caring for people who um, are harassed and hurting and afflicted. Care for them. Um, throw them into that ministry of sharing the faith and teaching and communicating uh, who Christ is. And um, that we need to pray that God would thrust people out. Now, um, that may intimidate 
some people as we think about uh, serving God in what, whatever setting that is, whether it's in this church, whether God might be calling you to some kind of mission or ministry, or whether it's just in your workplace, wherever God puts you during the week to say, wow, I, I'm called to serve people and show people the love of Christ here. It, it, it may be intimidating to get thrust into some environment that we don't know what God's going to do. Well, um, the reason we should not be intimidated is because of a last principle about mission that we learn in this passage. The fourth principle. The principle so far, Jesus' mission is always in word and deed. It is always uh, starts with his compassion, and it's always built on prayer. But lastly, we see that Jesus' mission is always done by others. Jesus' mission is always done by others, which I think is surprising because any time I've ever heard this passage taught on, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the, uh, but the laborers are few, right? I mean, that's just, you know, a softball for a pastor. Say, listen, there's a lot of work to do. Now you all get to work, all right? The harvest is plentiful, the work, workers are few. But actually, it's fascinating, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus says. He doesn't say the, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, now get to work, he says it's too big for you. He says to his disciples, there's too much for you to do. Instead of saying get to work, he says pray earnestly for laborers. Pray. It's a huge statement of our limits. There's so much work and, there, and we cannot do it all. It's a statement of our limits. And this is one of the most important first principles about mission in serving God in the world. Because many of you have many people that you're serving, you're caring for, you're opening your home to, um, you're in relationships with, that you're caring for. And you say, oh my goodness, how can I care for all these people? And it's, it's overwhelming to me. And the reality is Jesus says, you're right. It's more than you can do. It's far more than you can do. You look at even the, our little church, there's more than you can do. And so he says we need to pray for workers and we need to understand that I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Savior. I am not everyone's Savior. Jesus is their Savior. And so pray to him. And you know, I, actually Daniel and I were talking about this passage last week and he made the point that you know, Jesus has been for the last two chapters, you know, he did the long sermon in the mountain and then he spent the last two chapters doing these ten miracles and, and there's just crowds pressing in on him and he's healing them. And you even get the sense from Jesus that he's tired. He's trying to slip away. You know, when the two blind men come and he says, listen, don't tell anyone I healed you. It's just everyone's going to come and want to be healed. I just don't have the energy for it. And, you know, he's getting tired because he shares in our humanity. And it's like he's looking at, the, at, the, at the, the harvest and he's saying, we need to pray. We need more workers. And you 12 can't do it. I'm going to invest in you and you 12 can't do it. We need to pray. And, um, and so once we've realized that, that I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Savior, I can't do anything. Then we begin to ask, okay, well, what can I do then? What part do I play? And I think there's an important thing to see that um, a couple things. We need to realize that we must be sent by God. For whatever we're called to do, the little part that we play in this harvest, we need, it needs to be something that God has sent us to do. And you see that, verse 38, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I'll just tell you, some of you say, what should I be doing to serve Christ? Wow, in this sermon I've listed all kinds of things, um, just kind of uh, little mentions of different ways that we can serve Christ. What should I be doing? And historically Christians have said that there's three things that you consider, you take into consideration when you're asking, what is God calling me to do to serve him? The first is you ask, what do you have a desire to do? 
Where do I, you know the compassion that Jesus has where his insides are kind of turning? Where am I experiencing my insides kind of turning and aching for things? I'm like, I have a burden for this. That's the beginning of the Holy Spirit kind of calling us. But that's not enough. Because people have all kinds of desires. Say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, uh, and other, everyone standing around him says, uh, I don't think you should be serving God in that way. So also, there's a question of what do, what do other people tell me? How do other people say that I'm gifted? And um, so that they're, they're confirming, there's an external confirmation of the internal call. And so we have to have other people say, hey, I think, you know, listen to that. People saying, hey, I think you're a good teacher. Hey, I think you're really good at, uh, at you know, sharing your faith or building relationships with non-Christians. Or I think you're really good at, uh, you know, hospitality. When, when I come into your home, I just feel at ease and I feel like I'm at home. You're really good at that. You should do that more. What do other people tell me? And the last thing is, what do I have an opportunity to do, right? So, you know, I could say, you know, I, I think I should be a preacher to 50,000 people, um, you know, and it'd be like, well, <laughs> too bad, <laughs> right? And uh, actually, I don't really want to do that. But, uh, uh, but, you know, one of the things is you have to look at um, how, you know, what do you have an opportunity for? So it's my desire, it's what do other people say I'm gifted at, and what do I have an opportunity? Because you could be gifted, and you could have the desire, but... You know, there's no opportunity for that ministry. You know, maybe you want to, many people in seminary I knew, they wanted to be a pastor somewhere, and there were just no churches that were calling them. And so that was an important part of God showing us where he was calling us. So as we look at these three things, um, I, and we go into the place that God is sending us, that is how we tend to realize that I'm not the Christ. I have a specialized calling, and that's where I need to focus my energy. And it's when we uh, focus there, we tend to not get burned out. We tend to not wear ourselves out. And, um, and so we need to ask that question, where is God sending me? And, um, but the other side of that is that Jesus describes um, the people that he needs simply as laborers. Send out laborers. God, that God would send out laborers into a harvest. There's a simplicity to that. It's not that we have to say that I have all these gifts, I'm good at all these things. It's actually Jesus says, who's willing to go? Who's willing to say to, me, say to God, I'm willing to be sent out. I'm willing to be thrust out into an environment that I'm uncomfortable with and to do what you command me to do. And so it's actually not experts he's looking for. It's looking for willing laborers who are, say, I'm going to be a part of it. And so we say, is that me? Where is God sending me out to just labor and to, and to serve for him? Um, so on the one hand... As we, as we realize that the work needs to be done by others, what that says is, I don't have to do everything. I have to find what is God sending and calling me to do. But the other thing that shows us, the other side of that, is that we must know that the harvest is God's. The field that needs to be labored in is God's harvest. And I, I love this amazing statement that Jesus says in verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. His harvest. What he's describing here is he says there's this field that already a ton of work has been done in. You know, there's just, uh, you know, the grain is already growing. It's already been watered. It's already, the seed's already been planted. And you, we realize, wow, God, the primary work that's being done is, is done by Christ himself. He is doing all these things. And I'm just coming in to share in what he's doing. I'm entering into his labors. And this is the thing is that when we come, you know, I'll tell you, when God uh, first called me to be a pastor, the, the thing that I longed for the most 
was that I really wanted to see God's power. You know, I had seen that God could work in my life. I saw that the, the Bible made sense of my life. But the thing I really longed for is I wanted to see God's power. I wanted to see him answer prayers. I wanted to see that he was really alive and that he wasn't just working in my individual little life, but he was working in the world. And this is what Jesus says is, listen, when you come into, come into Jesus' ministry, you're going to find out that the harvest already has tons of work. God's been planting. God's been watering. You're going to meet a neighbor that you want to share the gospel with, and it turns out five other Christians have already been loving on them and caring for them and have been surrounding them. You say, wow, I'm just entering into God's work. And, and that's how it's been for me. I mean, I think of many of you who come to this church and you serve in this church and other people, other you know, Christians, other pastors, other churches have cared for you, discipled you, and you've come. And I'm just sharing in that. And it's a, it's a harvest that God is the primary one who is doing the work and we just have a part in it. We're, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. But it's a great joy, just like Harry Reader, when he went with his dad on that scouting trip and he got to share in this great work that he was like, my dad does this incredible work. That's what Jesus is inviting us into, is just to play a part. And then we will really know uh, his great love for us and his great love for our community. So let's pray together.